Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Ovnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. We are recording for Contrarian's Corner for Hudson Hawk. Hello and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. As Julio said, we are here to catch the excitement, catch the adventure, and catch the hawk with Hudson Hawk as we continue on our awards. It's not the awards season anymore, so I don't even know what we're calling this anymore. It was the awards season story arc, but it's a, the you know the, what do you call it when the when the match ends like in a tie, and then you go on for another thirty minutes or whatever. Sudden Dude, death, maybe, but not overtime? even that. Overtime, okay. we're in overtime. Awards, award overtime. Season, award season, overtime. There you go. All right. Uh, yes, uh, I'm. My name is Alex, and I'm joined as always by my buddy Julio, and we are here today to visit the 1991 action comedy. It blends action and comedy. Uh, Bruce Willis's Hudson Hawk. That simplifies the genre way too much. It uh, was supposed to be marketed as a comedy, but the studio. TriStar insisted on marketing it as an action movie due to it coming out shortly after Die Hard. <laughs> Starring Bruce Willis. Similar, uh, not unlike Love and Other Drugs, <laughs> where it's actually a drama, but the studio wanted to market it as a comedy. because It had Josh Gad in it. <laughs> exactly. We were riding high <laughs> off the rocker. Don't so you fucking make fun of the rocker. <laughs> I had to uh, complete sidebar, but I had to build up that movie for a special screening. And whoever the studio was that produ- uh, produced that movie sent like a guard to watch me build it and break it down. <laughs> it was like, oh, no, I'm going to leak the rocker. <laughs> so Hudson Hawk, it, and, you know, Bruce Willis has his fingerprints all over this. And uh, most would say that's for the bad. And we would not as uh if this is your first time listening to The Contrarians, we uh, rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine, as, as we like to say, and um, a movie that's rotten, make a case for it being good, and vice versa. Hudson Hawk uh, stands at a very minimal and uh, sad 26% on Rotten Tomatoes, and uh, a lot of people you know, have this um, preconceived notion of it. Like myself going in, that it, oh, it almost it's a, it's a ruined, punchline. Yeah, it ruined Bruce Willis's career. Yada yada yada. Uh, that's not the case. But like I said, it was not well received. It did win some Razzies, and that's why we're here today. Um, but more importantly, what were the critics saying? What are those green splotches on the Rotten Tomato page about Hudson Hawks? Um, a handful of quotes here from the Rotten Tomatoes website. Uh, we're gonna start with a big name. Peter Travers from Rolling Stone says, "This unspeakably awful." can make an audience a little crazy. You want to throw things, yell at the actors, beg them to stop. <laughs> he didn't say this unspeakably awful movie. He just says this unspeakably awful. He's referring to some mythical awful <laughs> thing. <laughs> this awful that must not be named. 
but yeah, that sounds like a fun screening he went to. Next, Chuck O'Leary from fullvoodrivein.com says, Vanity projects don't get much worse than this. We've done our share of vanity projects. I was about to say, I, I would like a moment for rebuttal. Uh, this is 40. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, whenever Chuck O'Leary wrote that, this is 40 was was far in the horizon. He had no idea. Give me enough time. I can figure out a vanity project from before 91. Uh, and finally, Clint Morris from Movie Hole says, go back to Moonlighting, Bruno. <laughs> what? I, I've never watched Moonlighting. I mean, I'm aware of the show. Mm-hmm. I don't think that his character, Bruce Willis's character, oh. was Bruno, though. So Bruno must be referring to something else. Mm. Either way, Clint Morris, I'm sure that was really funny back in 91. But it's it has an age well. Your little Unlike one-liner. Age <laughs> like, like wine. Like a fine wine. Yes, so that was immediately the point. I was assuming those quotes were going to get into. This was... Uh, the only writing credit Bruce Willis has to this day, I believe. Do you um, need any more? No. He believed in this, wanted to make it happen, hand-appointed all these different uh, producers, directors, what have you. He landed on Michael Lehman for directing, who at that point, the most famous thing he, or the thing he was most famous for, rather, was Heather's, which I have never seen, but never seen it. it's, it's definitely my, a cult classic. So my Netflix queue, it's been on my Netflix queue for over a year. Released on uh, Memorial Day weekend in 1991. Uh, It is the story of the Hudson Hawk, Bruce Willis. Uh, I thought we were watching the wrong movie, though, when this started, to to be honest. I love it when a movie just completely throws me off balance within five seconds. Because we're 500 years preceding 1991 when this movie was set. uh, And we're following Leonardo Leonardo da Vinci, who... Um, invented this giant smelting machine for gold. Uh, you know, the Mona Lisa was not all he was known for. <laughs> there's a there's narration, like old timey narration, and it's like it looks like a period piece. And it start it's like Shrek. It starts with like the the book that we're yeah. reading out of. Yeah, it's like it's like the spiritual sequel to the Princess Bride. Getting heavy Princess Bride vibes there at the beginning of this. Yeah. Uh, you just don't see the grandpa reading it. You just hear him. But but yeah, I honestly I thought that you had picked the wrong movie. I thought that you you, you accidentally rented Willow or something because it just the aesthetic was not the aesthetic of a Bruce Willis movie. No, it was not. And uh I was my concerns were quelled quickly though when I saw Bruce Willis and uh even more so when I saw Andy McDowell. Bruce Willis as Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> God. <laughs> that would have been magnificent. But uh Da Vinci, I didn't even catch who played him, but the the point of this story is he was um you know, very ingenuitive and created this giant machine that worked kind of in a helicopter-like fashion. It's very intricate. It's like an erector set, and he built this way of harnessing the energy from the sun through these series of, like, crystals and mirrors and shit, and it would produce perfect gold bars. Yeah, but that was, I think that he was much like Bruce Willis, I imagine, when he was writing Hudson Hawk. He came into this this really awesome thing, by accident, because doesn't the narration say that he was trying to accomplish something else? He was trying to to create, I think, bronze, mm-hmm. right? And then he accidentally created gold. I think the same thing. Bruce Willis was just doing this as a side project in between big blockbuster movies, and somehow he ended up with this indescribable work of art. <laughs> so we see that Da Vinci created this, and also he uh, created a little 
flying machine. It's like um that one's a little more popular. Yes. Yeah, it's uh the you'd expect to see him just kind of flying overhead at the beach in this thing. The air bicycle. <laughs> He uh, flies off into the sunset or sunrise. I couldn't tell which one it was. We can ask uh, Richard Linklater. But um, we then flash forward 500 years to present day where we are introduced to our uh, titular character here. Uh, Eddie Hawkins, the Hudson Hawk, Bruce Willis, the man of the hour here in this film. How much did it warm your heart to see Bruce Willis, not just with hair on his head, but also with 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 a soul with, with moxie yeah with a pep on his walk with you know just intent behind his movement it was it wasn't but 20 minutes into this when i turned to julio and i was like he's 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 trying he's on and that's what we're greeted with we're greeted with a young virile still in it to win it bruce willis yeah he's definitely he's taking chances he's uh he seems to be enjoying himself too. He seems happy. I, I think that anybody who's watched a recent Bruce Willis movie, and by recent I mean like the last what fifteen years, he doesn't look like he's having a good time in his movies. No. And at this point, I don't believe that that's the character. I believe that's Willis. That and we've just... run the gamut with him on the Contrarians. We've had the <laughs> highest highs, the the crushing lows, yeah. and look who's talking. <laughs> the the. Uh... And categorize <laughs> the creamy middles. Uh, but he is a cat burglar that is getting out of Sing Sing. Um, I did appreciate for whatever reason that, that the name drop of the prison he was staying in. Uh, he's a safe cracker. He's also good at uh, opening vaults. It's a little. Okay, you beat me to it. <laughs> it's a little offensive, Alex. Yeah. Uh, but he's on his first day of parole, and all this motherfucker wants to do is have a cappuccino. And you know what? This was immediately uh, giving me, you know, PTSD flashbacks of a good day to die hard. I'm just on vacation. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, that it pays off here, and because again, the immortal Brandon Curtis loophole in that, it's like no. He wasn't on vacation. He was sent there on a mission. Here, the man just wants a goddamn cappuccino. He is immediately propositioned by his parole officer, though, to pull off a heist of uh, art. I mean, that's what happens when you're when you're that good. That's the narration tells us that he's the best of the best. And when mm -hmm. you're the best of the best, you can't retire, and or definitely you can't change lanes. Because what he's trying to do, I guess, uh, it looks like a. Uh, uh, you know, he has ownership, half ownership of a coffee house or something. So that's what he's going to settle on. And, of course, life has other plans for him. And I think that that's a little bit the commentary on just Willis's career up to that point, right? When you're the guy, when you're John McClane, mm -hmm. you you don't switch lanes and suddenly do a comedy. No. You're, the studio is going to come back to you and be like, no, crack another safe for us. Yes. And then, you know. And this, this, the cappuccino is analogous to this movie because it's, you know, he just, he wants to make this comedy. And, you know, the Mario Brothers, the, the mafia is the studio saying, no, it's going to be an action movie. Um, Mario Brothers, obviously a play off the Nintendo tandem, uh, but that is headed by Frank Stallone. And they're the mafia members sent to recruit him for this job. One of many, 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 groups factions uh just trying to manipulate willis into stealing stuff this, this movie, movie is the 
fight scene from Anchorman with the different news channels, but it's <laughs> it is good. Right. It is it's feature length. Correct. That's really what happened. Um Eddie's partner in crime, Tommy Five Tone Messina, uh played by uh Danny Aiello. And the immortal Danny Aiello. I just saw him in a movie. Like I, I don't think I don't know if it was a Netflix original or just just a bad movie on Netflix, but it was it, you know, you asked me, we were watching, you're like, where do I know him from? And I said, do the right thing. And then your eyes lit up with <laughs> recognition. And uh, in this Netflix movie, he played a uh, uh, pizza place owner. And he was just sad because the movie was terrible. And you're Aww. like, you cast Danny Aiello as a pizza owner in a bad movie. That's just like a slap in the face, not just of him, but also pizza. pizza, Spike Lee, <laughs> minorities everywhere. <laughs> Here, so, at least, he's. What is he? What What's his business? Because I said coffee shop, but it's it's more than that. He owns a bar. It's a bar, yeah. like a sports bar. Right? Well, that's the thing. It was like you know your old towny bar, and Bruce, on while well, he's been on the inside, he comes out and sees it, and it's basically if this was based in 2019, he would have turned it into like a fucking craft beer distillery, and um, it's like who are these? Everyone there twirling their mustaches and. Bruce Willis would come in being the traditional Democrat that <laughs> agrees with you, but doesn't think it should go to the extreme that it has. And uh, Tommy Five Tone, the lecture at hand rather, is that Tommy Five Tone is his partner in crime and knows that he's going to have to be there with them. They kind of get fucking wrangled into this deal together, when which they're going to be sent to an art museum in New York, and they're going to apprehend this statue of a horse that it's Da Vinci made, right? The whole thing is Da Vinci. It's pieces. old Da Vinci. It's the Da Vinci Code before the Da Vinci Code was even thought of. I Correct. think. Yeah. It, uh, what's his name? Dan Brown. Totally ripped off Hudson Hawk. <laughs> a, a lot of people uh, ripped off Hudson Hawk gladly and didn't say <laughs> thank you. So we get this uh, robbery scene. They set it up. A little bit of speed sprinkled in here with a little bit of a musical number as the way we distract the guards as we loop back the. Uh, surveillance footage i know that we've seen bruce willis sing before i mean actually i mean we saw him sing a little bit in pulp fiction right when he's like um uh, when he's leaving after recovering the watch and he's like yeah but here you know this is this is big broadway stuff yeah this is a big grandiose number the whole gag gimmick what have you the act with uh tommy five tone and hudson hawk is their um they time their robberies to songs. Therefore, they know the exact time, the minute and second length of all these classic songs, and they kind of go back and forth about how much time they're going to need and uh, what have you. And before you say, why don't they just look at their watch? Well, that they're professionals. Be <laughs> they have their method. It's like why do he they even calls that out of like yeah. Uh, yeah they invented this thing while you were in the prison or while you were in prison called a watch and. Um, but no, that's not the movie. And, and jumping way ahead, there's like a line at the end of the movie that explains every question you could potentially have in this film. Um, but so I believe it's a Bing Crosby song they're singing here for the first uh, heist. And it, it's, it's a delight. It's awesome. It's synced up and like the background music's there. They're singing a cappella, but then, of course, the movie adds in the score. And I mean, I can't stress enough for the it's basically for the duration of this film, but this scene in particular, Bruce Willis is having fun. <laughs> yeah. And we're having fun with him. It's not the it's not one of those things where the the people on screen are having fun and you're just kind of horrified because you're like, okay, that's good that you're having fun, but the movie sucks. Mm -hmm. Here it's like, oh, you're having fun and the movie's benefiting from it. Yeah. It's 
we're still within the first act of the film and it's painting a picture of put your guard down we're gonna have some fun here right this is a guy that instead of looking at his watch he he'd rather sing a ben crosby song and that's that's how he times his his caper all right i mean i know exactly in case that the the leonardo da vinci prologue hadn't warned me enough i know what kind of movie i'm in for so they apprehend this uh statue of a horse created by da vinci they take it back to the mob um we meet the butler who's sent from antagonists. Our two main antagonists are uh, Darwin and Minerva Mayflower, played by Richard E. Grant and Sandra Bernhard, respectively. And they have this deal. It, everyone's fucking intertwined in this, but th yeah, they have a butler who's basically their fucking hitman. It's a British Baraka. <laughs> yeah, dude. Exactly. I've been playing a lot of Mortal Kombat, so I appreciate that reference. He comes back, he takes what uh, they stole, smashes it, kills one of the guys in the mob just to kind of send him a message. Uh, unfortunately, this is where we part with Frank Stallone. No, 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 no. no, no, no. no. Okay. He kills he, the other guy. He has the big action sequence coming up. I apologize. Yeah. So this is where we're learning quickly that there's a lot of tangled webs in this. And this is more just to prove a point that they had Hudson Hawk uh, steal this to basically see if he could. Well, but also inside the little horse, there's like a crystal. It's the first piece. The first piece. It's like a quest. It's, it's the, it's, yeah, it's fucking um, Ron Swanson chasing after all the you know the treasure hunts that leslie sends him on yes and he keeps finding pieces little by little uh but yeah so that's why it's all these da vinci pieces it's that like, is wild that i say quest like and you went to parks and rec instead of i don't know legend of zelda because <laughs> that was the first thing i thought of because when he gets the da vinci code the thing the little orb that uh -huh. you have to create i yeah. don't remember what the fuck it's called but he just takes a hammer and smashes it and pulls the first clue out that's what i thought of but yeah all these pieces of da vinci art have within them the pieces necessary to build uh the machine that created gold it's the fucking decoder from christmas story you got to have all the pieces of it so this leads to our next scene in which we're auctioning off a replica of this da vinci piece of art and lo and behold enter um gotta have her top 10 90 starlets and that's uh andy mcdowell the big guns come out to play because it's really they hit you one after the others andy mcdowell david caruso uh richard e grand you see him for the first time there andrew brianarski <laughs> yes that was that was your big i'm, I'm starstruck by everybody else and you were like wow that guy who it's fucking zangief from street fighter from yeah the 94 street fighter unrecognizable and also he played Leatherface in the 2003 Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. I mean, I'll believe you. <laughs> <laughs> I mainly know him as Zangief. I mean, you don't forget a big fucking doofus face like that dude has. And so when I saw him, I was you like... Yeah, that's crazy because I, I noticed that Steven D'Souza is, is listed as one of the writers mm -hmm. in this movie. And he directed Street Fighter. So there's like a lot of these incestuous connections. He was scouting. Yeah. <laughs> He's like... I like this guy. Can he do a Russian accent? <laughs> he can take a punch. Yeah, but naturally, uh, I'm not... Brian Arsky's not fucking De Niro. But then you have, like, David Caruso, who they just like, nope, don't speak. <laughs> We're giving all your lines to Brian Arsky. Andy McDowell comes out, and Bruce Willis somehow steps his game up in this film even more. Because immediately, I don't know if it was just uh, myself, but the, the tension is electric. It's palpable between them. And I'm talking within fucking 30 seconds of them interacting <laughs> with each other. It's just like, fuck yes. They're, they're at an uh, auction house, too, because they have to be quiet. Mm -hmm. And yet they manage to establish this report where you're just, you, you're glad, because we watch a lot of movies. We know that 
her introduction means that she is the girl yes. in the movie. You know, this is the 90s. There's going to be a lot of Bruce Willis and her flirting, and oh, yeah. that's going to pay off. Well, flirting. auctions are a fucking natural aphrodisiac, so that I, too, I understand. You just see those numbers climbing, and you just you get more that fast talking and tongue rolling. There's nothing you can do to fight it. So the auction is hijacked by uh, Darwin and Minerva Mayflower. Again, uh, Richard E. Grant and Sandra Bernhard, respectively. They have their butler there, um, and we notice, again, all these people we had mentioned previously – Donald Burton, uh, again, who I wasn't entirely sure uh, who that was. but uh, And then, of course, um, Brian Arsky, uh, David Caruso, all these colorful characters that each have a very distinct candy bar in their presence. It's a lot going on to the point where you're just thinking, what the fuck is happening right now? I was really glad that we were watching this together because I knew that together we'd be able to kind of reconstruct everything. I knew that if I missed something, odds are you were catching it mm-hmm. and vice versa. So so the point is... The, like Zangief. Yeah, there you go. I was too smitten with him. The uh, Mayflowers come in. They bid it's like $100 million on this replica. Um, and all this that we just mentioned is going on, really confusing the audience. And then before you have a second to even try to regroup your thoughts, the fucking auctioneer goes to hit the gavel to seal the deal, and this huge bomb goes off. Um, not before Andy McDowell saves Bruce Willis from the, the one of the guards there that recognizes him. Uh, and then he saves her because there's like a column that's about to fall on her and he he tackles her, mm-hmm. rips her dress. It's not – it's very much akin to um, Brendan Fraser and uh, Rachel Weisz's first scene in, in The Mummy. So, precursor. Exactly. So – that's established. What's not established is who the fuck all these people are. <laughs> you just know there's chaos. And that's cool because you're, uh, Bruce Willis is our, our point of view character. He's mm-hmm. confused. We're confused. Very much so. So the Mario Bros, uh, specifically Frank Stallone, you were right. This is where he has his attempted vengeance in which they get Hudson Hawk in an um, ambulance. And I can't remember what their plan is. They're just kind of driving around with them. They're laughing. They're laughing. I don't even know that. I don't think that they know what their plan is. They just he's he gets we got knocked, him right. He gets knocked unconscious during the after he the saves fracas. yeah after he saves Andy McDowell and then he wakes up and he is uh, he's just trapped in this ambulance with the with the Stallone brother. Well, no, the Stallone brother. Yes, <laughs> and then the other the other Italian oh, monsters. Imagine trying to tell Sly to have a cameo where he just gets a bunch of fucking syringes shot in his face. Uh, so big set piece. Yeah. Massive. Uh, Hudson Hawk fights his way out of this ambulance situation, but he is on the gurney, the stretcher on wheels. He fights off the, the mob members within it, tries to escape. He's now freewheeling around fucking weaving in and out of traffic on this stretcher. Uh, and you know, we're on the Hudson bridge here and And there's girls flirting with him. Uh, just everybody that's driving around him, nobody calls 911. They just <laughs> well, it is New York, they, they're accustomed to these things. But I did catch when one person drives by, he looks at him, and goes, How's my driving? Call 1 800, I'm fucking dead. Uh, this is where I realized that Bruce Willis was playing an R rated Bugs Bunny, basically. <laughs> that is not bad. He's just trying to get his cappuccino instead of his <laughs> carrot. Uh, he does see also that the toll's coming up, and he pulls off. Uh, well, I remember living in Dallas in the Plano area a lot of times, being jealous of people that could do this, the change, and then you just throw it and never actually stop, and it uh-huh. all goes in. I mean, fair fucks to him. He did this while straddling in a, a, a stretcher, for Christ's sake. Um, but he makes it through, and then doesn't he kind of careen off the side? Yeah, he – well, the – 
Stallone and his gang are after him, and they cross paths again, and he survives that, that encounter, but they end up flipping. Mm-hmm. His stretcher turned out to be more powerful than a truck, an ambulance. Enter in our next faction, which is a group of CIA operatives uh, led by James Corbin. Not James Corbin, the night... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> The night talk host. uh, James Coburn. Yeah. Excuse me. And his splendid teeth. His mouth is so fucking big. It's ridiculous. I I mean, especially when he gets mad. Much respect to James Coburn. I think he already passed away. But, you know, if he can hear this, I I mean, I don't want him to, like, take offense. (laughs) But that was, I mean. Oh, two. I think that he was made up, like, the makeup was. Because I've never seen him like this, mm-hmm. so I think that the makeup was was its mission was to maybe accentuate his teeth and his <laughs> mouth in general. Because he's just he's, draw attention to it, right? He's one of the main bad guys here. So I mean, even though he's CIA, he he comes across a sinister guy, mm-hmm. and really you cannot stop staring at his teeth every time he talks. Yeah, that is an interesting. Um moral struggle that the viewer has of this movie it's kind of similar to a lot of the uh themes that are called out in the dark night of you know who's the good guy who's the bad guy because i mean still at the end of the day uh hudson hawk is a criminal that has you know a, a felony record but regardless here he's trying to do the right thing it's just he keeps getting fucking you know uh blackmailed or uh coerced or and the um, thing is i mean they didn't really have to try too hard to convince him to do that first robbery mm-hmm. so Yes, they were blackmailing him, but it was not – it never really got too bad. He he was just like, all right, I'll do it. Yeah. So uh, George Kaplan is the name of James Coburn in this and his CIA agents. Uh, again, we already went down the, the list of them, but Snickers, Kit Kat, Almond Joy, and Butterfinger are their code names. If you had to guess who would be Zangief, would you have guessed Butterfinger? Of course. you got to have the big affable <laughs> doofus. Um. But they're working with uh, Darwin and Minerva Mayflower. This somehow all is going to benefit them in the end if they can print this gold. I think it's it's always good for a movie to remind us that you just can't trust the CIA no matter what. Mm. So I'm sure they have ulterior motives for everything. Don't trust the government. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, let's see. Where do we go from here? Um, Kaplan and his CIA agents uh, render... Hudson unconscious, and they put him in a giant shipping crate and send him over to Rome. This is ostensibly where the second half of the movie begins. Yes. He All across up. the world. That's uh, From what I read, too, that's actually how they shipped uh, Bruce Willis over there. <laughs> and he just woke up ready to film the next day. Full of energy. Can't do that with Bruce Willis today. No. He would just die in a rage. Yeah. Over there, we have more pieces to this uh, Da Vinci puzzle. We have several museums that Darwin and Minerva are wanting Hudson to hit for them. Uh, He's taken to them. He's basically tied up and told, you're going to fucking do this. And then we find out that uh, it's true blackmail. It's not even really extortion anymore. They they have pictures that were taken of him by the CIA, CIA operatives of him robbing that museum in New York. So it's basically you have to do this or you're going back to prison, which he wants to go back to prison. But then they basically physically coerce him into doing these things. Um, yeah, it's also uh, this is where we find out that there may be more to Andy McDowell than meets the eye because she she's giving a tour of the museum. Mm-hmm. So she went from uh, New York to Rome. 
And God bless Bruce Willis. He doesn't miss a beat. He It, it doesn't seem to really... <laughs> he picks up where they left off. Yeah, and uh, she... He's trying to ask her, you know, hey, you want to go out? And she's giving a fucking tour. And she's like, any questions? <laughs> like, yeah, when do you get off? <laughs> uh, the Codex here, it's the Da Vinci Codex that he's trying to apprehend. And so he's just, as they say in the industry, case in the joint. And basically tests out to see what the security features are, what's happening. Um, he steals a, a young girl's stuffed animal and throws it at the exhibit to see kind of what security measures are taken. Uh, from here... Andy McDowell rescues him and takes him down the stairwell because she obviously knows her way around it like it's the goddamn Batcave. Um, they have their moment. I think this is where they set up going to dinner together. Right. He finally, She finally agrees to go out with him. Uh, he leaves. Uh, I, I don't know if this is where we find out she's a nun. Right, because the, there's, a, there's crucifix, a crucifix, which is also doubles as a communicator. As the bat phone. <laughs> you hear the voice of God telling yeah. her... Uh, they they need an update. Yeah, um, is it here we find out that they're in on it too? We just know that they're just another faction. That there's whatever's going on. Andy McDowell has her own agenda. I don't think we find out that she's a nun yet. She's talking to a priest, but we don't know for sure that she's a nun. But they haven't like this priest, this church. This they have an operation that kind of right goes they, weaves in and out of these things. Yeah, and again. It makes sense that crimes of that level would have this intricate network of people involved. It happens all the time in real life. We just don't know about it. Exactly. You know, it's like just because the Mueller report can't prove it doesn't mean that it's not happening. Mm -hmm. Hudson comes back to rob the Da Vinci Codex. And I have a specific note written here uh, about just a visual gag that if I was Italian or, you know, from that region of the world, I probably wouldn't find too funny. But one of the security guards there has a thermos and starts pouring it onto his plate, and there's spaghetti in it. And it was one of those things. It was so funny. I didn't even laugh. I just said out loud, "That is fucking hilarious." Um, you think they do the same thing in Italy? They depict Americans. You just your thermos. It's, it's pours a gun. Fries. <laughs> <laughs> a, bullets. A gu yeah, bullets come out of the thermos. The, the thermos is a gun. That that would be the Italian remake of this. Um, <laughs> whatever the the cause, it fucking rattled me to my core. I thought that was fantastic. So Hudson gets in. He takes care of business. He apprehends the uh, Codex. Leaves. He flees like fucking Batman. It's awesome. He like shoots up through the ceiling. Well, he doesn't shoot up. He just like hoists a <laughs> rope up there and he climbs it like he's in gym class. It's even more impressive. He falls off the side of the museum while he's being chased by the guards and uh, lands in, like the back of a chicken truck. And then the chicken truck happens to drive him exactly to where he was supposed to meet Andy McDowell for their date. And again, it's a fucking comedy. It's, I mean, that happens all the time in, in, in like going back to Bugs Bunny. That, that kind of shit happens and you find it amusing. Why don't you find it amusing when it happens to Bruce Willis? No shit. Uh, so he lands and doesn't he cough up some feathers? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just to let you know where we're at and take it a little bit more over the top. But he does land for his dinner with Andy McDowell. He starts explaining that he did some time in prison. Uh, to gauge how long he had been in prison, he says, I never saw E.T., which <laughs> tickled me for whatever reason. The CIA operatives are there having dinner, like watching them. And don't they go back to Andy McDowell's place? Right. And then the uh, 
the Catholic siren goes off because something was stolen from the the church or museum. And right, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes back to her because they. I think this is where he finds out that she's a nun. Not yet. Not yet. No. Okay, so they almost. It's it's towards the end that he finds out she's a nun because uh, they start to kiss and get broken up here. This is more of just like I think she hits him with the uh, you know there's things about me that you don't know. <laughs> but she finds out that he stole the uh, codex. She starts kind of piecing it together, and I think at this point he realizes that she's potentially aware of some of the things going on. Um, and then that's when the fucking Kit Kat, Nick Knack, Patty Whack, they all come in uh, and apprehend them to take them back to um, the uh, Mayflowers. Yes, they take both of them, right? Mm-hmm. Cause I, I, yeah, because they end up being tied up together, and they get Andy McDowell high. That's a bit later. Okay. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out exactly where they go from here. I mean, we're at the point in the movie where every single character that's being introduced is on the screen. And you're just, it's like, where's Waldo? Like, where's Hudson Hawk? Because mm-hmm. I don't know who I'm supposed to follow. And it's awesome. I mean, it's, you're just overwhelmed by comedy and hijinks, but it's still, uh, when you think back on it, you're just like, oh, yeah, I was having a great time. But much like at a party where you drank too much, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of fuzzy. And again, there's a line at the end of the movie that kind of <laughs> explains all this. Yeah. So what does happen is Hudson's back in the custody, so to speak, of the Mayflowers. And he's refusing to go on this last heist to get um, the – it's like a fucking little helicopter model uh, that has the last piece of the fucking Da Vinci gold machine in there. And he's not going to do it. He says no. So they bring out the big guns. They bring in uh, back uh, Tommy Five Tone. Danny Aiello. Who's there to... You thought we left him behind in New York, which makes sense because I just remember that at some point he tries to call him and he doesn't answer the phone. Mm-hmm. And he's like, why isn't he pick him up? picking up? And it's because he was with the bad guys already. And so he, in no uncertain terms, tells him he kind of sold out his friend to them. <laughs> but, you know, we got to figure out a way out of this. And I think he even hits him with the, it's going to hurt you a lot more than it hurts me. They get into a scuffle. Uh, long story short, they already had this planned out to where they, Tommy Five Tone was going to have his death faked. And it's a callback to the night before when he was having dinner with Andy McDowell. He asked for a bottle of ketchup from the waiter there. So uh, a la Metal Gear Solid when you're stuck in the prison cell and you have to use the ketchup to make it seem as though you're injured uh, to escape. So do uh, Bruce Willis. Ripped off Hudson Hawk. <laughs> and uh, Danny Aiello. So they think they've gotten away with it. And don't they just fucking right away go back to Andy McDowell's place? They're <laughs> yes. like, fuck yeah, time to party with Andy McDowell. And party they do. They have a good night. Uh, this is where Hudson thinks he's going to get lucky with... Uh, um, I haven't said her character name one time in this movie. Anna. Uh, he's rejected once again, but he still doesn't know. Danny Aiello's watching from the couch. He is. And he's just fucking cracking up. He's finding this to be uh, quite humorous. Uh, next morning we wake up, and I can't even remember how they tracked him. But this, well, they're in the CIA, so this yeah, is what they, they do for a living. It's, it, I mean, Hudson Hogg's attitude towards being wanted by so many powerful people is so cavalier. <laughs> it's just so, you know what? Whatever happens, happens. Because I'm this cool, I'll figure it out. It was uh, the ambulance that took them away had a um, like a cathedral tag on it or something like that that's what the guy says is how they found him something to that effect uh coburn's on the case they find them they take what they need they get the last part for the gold machine they shoot 
some tranquilizer darts at them and we get uh like this intensely funny sequence of Bruce Willis and uh, Danny Aiello being paralyzed from the neck down and Annie McDowell comes in, she's shot and paralyzed and that's where um Almond Joy, the one female operative calls her sister and <laughs> Bruce Willis is kind of putting two and two together here. Meanwhile, uh, much like he had the night before, Tommy Five Tone is just laughing his ass off at him. It's it's really that's when you find out that the movie's a lot more risque than you thought because comedy or not, Andy McDowell was not behaving like a nun. No, <laughs> I mean it's not that that Willis was putting the moves on her and she was gently rebuffing him. Mm-hmm. She was full on flirting back. Mm-hmm. There was some some physical contact, and. I mean, I gave it props at that point. And I was like, all right, cool. It's not just a funny reveal, but also it just uh, it just shows you that the, the movie had an extra edge. Yeah. Uh, t- in fact, it made me wonder. I was like, how far are they going to take this? Because like I said at the beginning of the movie, right, when she is introduced, you're like, oh, she's the girl. Yeah. And she, we're going to see them flirt, and eventually it's going to pay off because this kind of movie ends with the guy and the girl making out. So what's going to happen now that you've told us that she's a nun? So they take her. They leave behind uh, two of the operatives to make sure that Hudson and um, Tommy die. And naturally, it goes awry, as things are prone to do. Somehow, they get feeling back quickly, and it's like this massive fucking rocket launcher. They shoot one at uh, Don Harvey, Snicker, and it sticks to his head. And man, what a horrifying way to go. And but they make a joke out of it because he has it stuck for a little bit. The timer goes down and it doesn't go off, and so he says, "Oh, I guess it was a dud." And, and then, then it explodes. explodes. That's that's fucking Looney Tunes stuff. <laughs> they escape unscathed, fortunately, and they're on the trail to rescue the damsel in distress. Now back at Mayfl, what is it? Mayflower Castle. Yeah, Mayflower Manor, wherever the fuck they are. They have inebriated Andy McDowell. What are they trying to extract from her? They're trying to get some information from her. Yeah, what is it they're asking her? Uh, is it, I just wrote, Andy McDowell is high and making dolphin noises. Okay. That's really the most important thing in that scene. It is. It's, uh, she knows where the replica of the machine's being reconstructed. Oh, yeah, yeah, because they need to put the crystal there. Correct. They have all the pieces they need. They just need the machine now. Um, and she has that information. Yeah, they just get her high, and she's making dolphin noises. And I've it, never seen Andy McDowell be funny this way. I've seen her be funny as like she's playing the straight woman to mm-hmm. somebody that's funny. Uh, but dolphin noises—that's never happened. <laughs> I didn't know that it was possible. So this closing sequence is just this ultimate showdown. Uh, Tommy and Hudson make their way back uh, or make their way onto the scene here with that rocket launcher in tow and they begin crooning out another classic. I think it mentions here on the Wikipedia page. Yeah, it's uh, Paul Anka's Side by Side, uh, which is a great song and it's a return to form from the beginning of the movie. Naturally, you know, this is a bit bumpier of an operation, so there's some uh, speed bumps, as it were, in the way, including the Baraka, the butler, (laughs) Who gets into a scuffle with Tommy, but I was glad that they brought the the musical aspect back because at first I thought I mean honestly, I really don't know what I thought about the, it, that this movie was gonna be pretty early on the movie showed me that I had no business trying to even anticipate what kind of movie it was gonna be, but when they did the first musical number, my thought was, all right, I guess we're gonna see a lot of this mm-hmm. because he's he's being introduced as a 
as a master, you know, safe cracker. <laughs> and by guess, the end of the movie, he's a dangerous cracker. Right. <laughs> he is. Uh, so I figure we're going to see him crack a lot of saves. We're going to see him pull a lot of heists. So I figure we're going to see a lot of musical numbers. And that didn't quite happen because the story kept taking a left every time that I thought. Well, what's great, going. too, is the first musical number. You get the sense of this is how it was. So it's kind of like the band rides one more time. And right. then by the end of the movie, it means even more because it's like the final number. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, the Mayflowers, uh, specifically, uh, Susan Bernhard, what was her character's name? Sandra Bernhard. <laughs> Minerva. Specifically, Minerva has a fucking crossbow and takes out David Caruso, uh, and several other of the CIA militia, um, Andrew Bryanarski specifically, <laughs> 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 to the point where it comes down to, uh, James Coburn is the only one left from the CIA. And we get some hand-to-hand combat between him and Bruce Willis. Do you think that was really Coburn, or did they get like a kung fu master to to double for him in the in those scenes? I mean, it, I'd hate to question James Coburn, but <laughs> it's pretty spectacular. That, it is that fight. I mean, especially considering it's early '90s, that kind of stuff. Now you just like, oh, they CGI that. Yeah. But now that that looks like actual hand-to-hand combat happening right there mm-hmm. in one take. Yes, while Hudson's fighting with uh, Kaplan atop wherever the fuck we are, uh, Tommy fights with Darwin and the butler inside of um, the limousine. They're like on the little fucking dra- gravel road that led to the place. and The driver gets shot. Correct. The driver gets shot through the neck. No, yeah. no. Is there a bomb? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, to as you said, the driver gets shot through the neck. Alfred is the uh, the butler's name, which I didn't know. <laughs> makes, makes sense. sense. Yeah. yeah, makes especially because uh, uh, Richard E. Grant is basically playing the Joker. <laughs> it's true, uh, to the point where there's a scene where he has like a pair of sunglasses on with only one <laughs> lens in. So uh, Alfred, the butler, shot through the neck, escapes through the car, and leaves a bomb behind uh, with Tommy trapped. And I guess he just fucking puts it in a neutral or guns it. Um, as it starts careening off this cliff and also explodes in midair. Uh, it really looks like conclusive <laughs> proof that that's the last we've seen of Danny Aiello in this movie. Mm-hmm. And it's it's sad. At the same time, I worried because we're obviously climatic, you know, run in the movie. It's the third act. Everything is happening. And I really didn't want Bruce Willis to suddenly pump the brakes and stop to mourn his friend, mm-hmm. his the guy that had been with him all these years. It wouldn't because, have been befitting. Well, yeah, and you do, for the benefit of the movie, you kind of have to keep things going. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's – and, I mean, going back to this cartoon aesthetic and tone and everything, Bugs Bunny doesn't stop to mourn every time that something happens to Elmer Fudd or uh, – the guy with the big show must go on yeah (laughs) so so yeah it just they're like oh man he died and then we keep going and this is also how uh james coburn kaplan gets taken out because he's on the hood of the car i think bruce willis knocks him over the edge of where they're fighting right yeah so two birds with one stone as they say uh back inside the mayflowers have hudson they they've got him they said you know give us what you have we're gonna make this machine work he intentionally sabotages it. He leaves one part of it out, like right. one has, of the mirrors. He, he assembles a crystal, and it looks like it's the way it was supposed to be when Da Vinci had it. 
but then he secretly kept one of the mirrors in uh, in his pocket. And it's pretty cool that this late into the movie, they even when things are this dire, the movie doesn't lose its sense of humor because we find out that he's kept the crystal uh, because him and Bruce Willis and Andy McDowell are doing this stage whispering to one another. <laughs> she like basically just calls him out like, man, what a pussy. You just gave up that easily. <laughs> He's like, oh, it probably is not going to work because I didn't put this in here. And work it does not. It fucking explodes. It covers fucking um, Sandra Bernhard in, like, melted gold. Uh, it's, I believe that's a Game of Thrones thing that happens. <laughs> Before Game of Thrones. So, one more thing that the, ripped off. Uh, Hudson Hawk. Uh, and Darwin, I believe, is electrocuted. Uh, Academy Award nominee. <laughs> Richard E. Grant building the road he, uh, to his Academy Award nomination. The, the trivia piece was very small, but apparently he has like an autobiography that has an entire chapter about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the stories of shooting Hudson Hawk. So our two bad guys, our main antagonists, are dead, but there's still you know the hangers-on, namely Alfred the butler, who gets into a battle with uh, Bruce Willis, in, in which Andy McDowell attempts to help him out here with a gun, but ends up just shooting uh, Bruce Willis twice. And he's like, quit helping me. Reminded me a lot of Shaun of the Dead with the, the darts. Yeah, just basically, you know. Get some knowledge before you hold a gun and aim it at anybody. Yeah, that's, just... that should be a pretty standard rule. Uh, Bruce ends up using his Baraka blades against him and ends up decapitating Alfred. And doesn't he say, like, you're not going to make it to that hat convention in May? Not the first one-liner you would have thought, which I appreciate. They go <laughs> they go deep with, with it's a deep cut. Hawks <laughs> one-liners. That's like take number 20. <laughs> all those Aptow crew movies have on the DVD, you know, the Linorama. Yeah. Yeah, they would probably have like 60 takes of this one. Don't Lose Your Head was probably the first one. <laughs> and the director, Michael Watson, he's like, harder, Bruce. Try harder. <laughs> Bruce, walk with me. <laughs> And we, you know, to reaffirm that this is a goddamn cartoon, it, the final boss is the dog. <laughs> yes. This dog that's been in and about the film, the bunny, I believe, is the name of the dog, the Mayflower's dog, and um, he attacks Andy McDowell. Well, no, which she is attacks awesome. him because well, yeah. yeah, she's like this one's mine or the my turn or something, and. Uh, Bruce Willis ends up shooting the dog out the window with like this rocket powered tennis ball machine that shoots it and because the dog jumps up and tries to get the ball. And uh, I appreciate we go from, you know, a man being decapitated to something so goofy again, just to kind of nail home what the tone of this movie is supposed to have been. Yeah. And then this was around the time when the dust is settling. So I turned to you and I said. All right, well, now he needs to mourn his friend. Well, not before he needs to escape because the whole vicinity is blowing up. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole thing is coming apart. Yeah, yeah. The, the mansion is crashing down. It's crumbling down. So he, uh, this is where he looks up through the, the smoke and the fog and the fire and flames and sees the um, Da Vinci's flying machine. Excuse me. Right. And they apprehend that. The air bicycle. Yeah. And... They fly away from the wreckage. They're like descending at a rapid rate, and you just see them both screaming. Andy McDowell's covering Bruce Willis's face. He's like, "Don't cover my eyes!" And he looks <laughs> at what's coming. Is ah, cover my eyes. Uh, this, I mean, I know that now. The running joke is how many things have ripped off this movie. But I literally, I watched How to Train Your Dragon three last night, mm -hmm. and everybody raves about how beautiful it is every time that that dragon takes flight. 
It's got nothing on Bruce Willis and Andy McDowell flying on Da Vinci's <laughs> machine. So they land. They abandon this centuries-old machine that is invaluable. They fuck it. I want my goddamn cappuccino. <laughs> so they just begin walking through this uh, village in Rome, uh, and this is where you said, "Okay, he needs to start mourning the loss of his friend." When the lo- adrenaline is, is is coming down, it's the post orgasm where you know <laughs> it's the time of reflection. Uh, but Tommy Five Tone is back, and he shows up, and he's like covered in soot, and like there's smoke coming off of him. And he's like, how the fuck did you survive that? And he says, airbags, can you fucking believe that? He says, but the car blew up. There were sprinklers in the back. Can you fucking believe that? And then Bruce Willis with the line of the movie explaining the movie. Yeah, that's probably what happened. (laughs) Brilliant. It's built in. Anything could have happened. I I can't imagine what the three-hour... cut of this movie is where they just every crazy idea they had they just threw it in because you know what that's probably what happened that's the end game version of the film yes no intermission either you Jesus. just go from beginning to end all with that one 44 ounce soda and and uh Hudson soda, the, the cappuccino <laughs> is finally had, and we get the storybook fade like oh, 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 oh. but Eddie McDowell renounces God. Which is, you know, that was the biggest question for me. I, I had no doubt that they were going to survive, that the bad guys were going to be thwarted. But to me, the big question was, oh. what's going to happen with this romance that we set up so perfectly and then that we so effectively blocked when we revealed that Andy McDowell was a nun? Oh, well, turns out that you can stop being a nun. <laughs> Loving Bruce Willis is, you know. <laughs> well, she even says, I think God would like me to. <laughs> I think, yeah, he wants me to keep you. an eye on you. <laughs> yeah. Which, By keep an eye, I, I mean have sex with you. Follow God's will. Yeah. I, I know, I'd know. i feel the same way if I was in her shoes. I mean, you could argue that. Uh, or his shoes. Danny Aiello came back like Jesus. He, he died. He was the guardian back. angel. <laughs> yeah. It's all good. It's a happy ending. That's probably what happened. And Hawk finally gets his cappuccino. He looks at the camera, freezes, freeze frame. And we get the, it fades to the storybook telling like it did at the beginning of the movie. And then uh, Fred Savage goes like, but, but that's it. What happened to the flying machine? <laughs> Grandpa was like, I'll come back tomorrow. <laughs> You're still not feeling well. So that was Hudson Hawk. And it, is worth its weight in gold, no pun intended, and it's worth way more than 26%. It's a trip and a half around the world twenty-six to Italy and back. Should we take this trip to Real Talk? <laughs> yes. Let's, let's ride that flying machine to Real Talk. You figure this out all by yourself? Yeah. Good plan, Junior. Uh, we got about uh, five minutes and change. 532, swinging on a star. You know, they invented something while you're inside. It's called a watch. Hey, Tom. all right and we are recording for real talk for hudson hawk tremendous 
Hudson Hawk, again, I ran down a lot of this in the first half, but uh, directed by Michael Lehman, uh, produced by Joe Silver, screenplay uh, by Steven DeSouza. Told you. And uh, Daniel Waters, story by Bruce Willis, again, one of the only things a writing it, credit. Brainchild of Bruce Willis. When I think of peak Bruce Willis, this is what I think of. Not Not the movie, because I just watched the movie, but this kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, like... And um, irreverent, really, in all my research, like trivia and things like that. I mean, the general theme of everything I read was that he had a vision for this and he clashed with a lot of people over it. I think that was the main thing of, you know, he constantly was bickering with the director of the studio, that type of thing. Uh, like I said, the studio wanted to market it as a action movie when it's it's it, there's action, but it's a fucking comedy. It's a comedy first and foremost. And um, one of the funny things I did read about it that was cracking me up was uh, the action sequence with, like, the stretcher. Yeah. They really shot that in New York. Uh, and, like, they would shut down the Brooklyn Bridge between, like, 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. And, I mean, it's fucking New York City. There's still, there's still just going to be <laughs> pandemonium. But uh, a lot of people would gather around for shooting just, like, to try to see Bruce and see what was going on and stuff like that. And he went on the local news after production wrapped to thank the people of New York City for like their patience and helpfulness and all that stuff. So, oh, yeah. I remember thought, when Bruce Willis was nice, man. Th- remember Bruce Willis is the theme of this movie. <laughs> so, um, just play this back to back with a good day to die hard. And what's going to die is your soul. <laughs> it is. And we'll get into this a little bit more, but this is, you know, those people that rated it so poorly when it came out that it's at 26%, like, watch it now. Like, shame <laughs> on you. You're the you're the people who killed Bruce Willis. Yeah, this, you know, his, his, his dream project, his passion project, and you just didn't even ignore it, but rather debased it. Well, and Julio and I had never seen it prior to tonight, and but we were familiar with its legacy as something that, like, derailed Bruce Willis's career and was supposed to be like this monumental piece of garbage. It wasn't even worthy of being called a movie. It was just being, what was it, awfulness? Or is it like yeah. whatever the first quote we read was. Um, Did you ever play the Hudson Hawk game? No. I was. I know it existed, but I, I never played it. It was on the Commodore 64. Fuck yeah. Um, oh, I thought it was Nintendo. There, there was an, an NES and a Game Boy version of it. Oh, okay. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Memorial Day weekend, 1991, May 24th was its release. It was a bizom as it had a box office return of, uh, less than 18 million when its budget was at 65. So Tony Aiello is not cheap. No, he's not. Danny Aiello. I don't know about Tony. Tony might be a little cheap. That happens to me so much at this, like, I have so much just fucking movie, TV, wrestling, fighting to the point where like. The best example, like, I'm not trying to be funny when I do it. It's just the way it is. There's this wrestler who used to be Tommy End, and now he's Alistair Black, and I just call him Tommy Black all the time, and that's how, because that reminded me, I do that with actors and shit like that all the time, too. Uh, Robert Pacino. Well, Bob De Niro, you know? (laughs) Um, So it happens. I, I understand that, but... What's causing all this, the reason we've been doing these episodes, is the awards, uh, and now we're in overtime with that, and this did receive three Razzies, so we back and forth. Um, worst director, worst screenplay, and worst picture. Now, Alex, do you think any of those 
Do you have who they were competing against? I will pull that up momentarily, but I'll also say that Bruce was nominated for Worst Actor and Richard E. Grant nominated for Worst Supporting. How fucking dare they? And Sandra Bernhard nominated for Worst Supporting. I can almost see that one. In his autobiography, With Nails, Richard E. Grant, uh, Diary is a production of this film in detail, noting that the ad hoc nature of the production and extensive rewriting and replotting during the actual filming uh, Willis went on to become one of the leading box office stars of the 90s, but has not made any uh, future forays into script writing. <laughs> shame. For shame, For Hollywood. shame. All right. I can already tell you it wasn't the worst, but let's see what we got here. <laughs> At the very least, it can't be the one that tried the least. You know, it almost feels bad to slap down that Razzie on a movie that's trying so hard to mm-hmm. do something. Uh, so cool as this was the other worst picture nominees. Cool as ice, dice rules, nothing but trouble. Return to the blue lagoon. Cool as ice is a vanilla, vanilla ice. It is. My God. Uh, dice rules. I'm assuming with Andrew Dice Clay. Yep. Nothing but trouble. Demi Moore, John Candy, Chevy Chase. Directed by Dan Aykroyd. Oh shit. (laughs) Uh, worst actor. Okay. So didn't win that. That went to Kevin Costner for Robin Hood. <laughs> oh, Sean Young won Worst Actress. Director. So all those movies. We, oh, also, John Landis for Oscar was nominated, which I'm not familiar with that. Sly. Movie. That's a, the unusual Stallone comedy. Yeah, that just sounds rough. <laughs> and I think he's a mobster. Yeah, so these were all the same things, just nominated over and over again. And so I can't. I it's a sweep. Yeah, I have not seen Cool as Ice, Dice Rules, Nothing But Trouble, or uh, Return to the Blue Lagoon. But I have seen Hudson Hawk now. First thing I need to say is that it's fucking not as bad as its legacy entails. Okay, before we move forward. No, I know. I'm I'm jumping oh, the gun, but I was kind of going to segue into the fact that I'm feeling this way is not new. It's not an original feeling as there were right. 26 people or 26% <laughs> of the critics, I should say, that agreed. 26 people in the whole world that liked this movie. And now there's 28. <laughs> 100 people reviewed the movie. Um, Hal Hinson from the Washington Post said, a crafty satire, but with a swashbuckling soul. Excellent word. Uh, Brian Orndorff from DVDTalk.com, a delightfully outlandish vanity film capable of eliciting giggles, groans, guffaws, and gagging frequently in the same fanciful instant. That's, that's an adventurous uh, experience. Yes. Uh, finally, Jason Bailey from Flavorwire. Let's be clear. Hudson Hawk is, by most reasonable standards, a pretty bad movie. Yet you have to give it this much. In contrast to your typical summer blockbuster, then or now, at least it's got some personality. I agree with that. Yeah. I couldn't tell you that it's a good movie. <laughs> no. But I had a blast watching it. Yeah. It's not – it doesn't rank amongst the movies that we've done in here. Where It's it's not uh, Here Comes the Boom where I'm just like, I will defend this movie. Right. It's, it, that's a good movie. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely whatever. The Rotten Tomatoes ranking, I think the whole fucking point of this podcast is that means fucking shit. What to me – this is a movie I knew because its legacy was it was so bad. And it's and it's not. It, it's not. It's, it's not, not Geely. Right, no. It's, it's not Geely. It's not it's not even Star Trek Five. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what I mean? Like Star Trek Five felt very uh it was like the opposite of this. Also a bad movie, but it felt 
constrained, whereas like this one felt like it was going all over the place. Yeah, and Th- it, this one was the Shatner cut, basically. I d- the, not the Willis cut. <laughs> the vanity critique. It didn't really bother me. I thought there was enough going on. It, to me, it didn't ooze as much, you know, ego stroking and uh, self-centered storing, storytelling as a movie like This Is 40. That being said, I, I could certainly see someone thinking that. If, like, they're not into it, they're just going to be like, oh, of course, Bruce Willis does this and this and this and this. I guess that was the thing. Mind you, I think both you and I having such a good time with this was, I don't mean to speak for you, it was coming in with the expectation that we had. Well, it is that, and also I think we are so removed from when it came out that it's gained some some extra levels of enjoyment, right? Because back then, I don't know who the fuck Richard E. Grant was or who David Caruso was. <laughs> and now I'm just, every five minutes, I, there's another actor that I know mm-hmm. that that's showing up there. And I'm like, oh, look. And so that makes it instantly funnier i think um and also two big things and i've said this numerous times in like my whole immense cynicism towards modern cinema um and that nothing's fucking original i watch something like this i'm like hey someone tried something yeah and, and- yeah uh somebody was telling me maybe there was a tweet around i think eddie mentioned something about the it was either I think it was because of the box office releases because Us was number one at the box office that when it came out and it was the first time in I don't know how many months that an original movie, not an adaptation, had been number one at the box office. And I mean, that makes sense because obviously percentage wise, you have more adaptations released than mm-hmm. originals to begin with. But yes, you're right. I mean, you don't get that many originals produced greenlit and written i guess to begin with because of things like this (laughs) studios take a risk on it (laughs) this is what happens they lose 50 million dollars but that helps so when i can watch something and be like hey something original and then secondly we joked about this in the first portion but it is absolutely fucking true when you've gotten used to 20 plus years of bruce willis coasting and then you see like him giving a genuine effort I think a lot of those, I assume most of those reviews you read were from real time, like at the time. Right. So imagine you have a stretch of like what we got used to with Bruce Willis and then this comes out now. Would the response be different? Because it's like, holy shit, Bruce is back. Like, you know, it. What happened to Bruce? Number one, it's a dumb idea. And this has happened. And Love and Other Drugs, which is a better movie than this, but it suffered at the box office because of this. You know, studios will always have their metrics. Mm. They can point to like something that's worked before. Marketing a movie as something, marketing a movie as something it's not is just always a bad idea. Yeah. The idea that, well, they'll like it once they get there. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're going to feel cheated. Yeah. To this day, I haven't rewatched Adventureland because I went to see it thinking it was going to be another super bad. And yeah. it's a completely different movie. It's a great movie. It's, it's, I know, like, rationally, I know it's a better movie than what I remember. It was, but, but it was just... you went there expecting right, something else. I wanted a completely different movie. And so many people, that's their thing of drive. Like, they went there <laughs> expecting something different. And wasn't it that lady that sued mm-hmm. the studio? Because she thought it was going to be like Fast and the Furious. <laughs> Which, uh, just fucking... If you have the financial investment that you've made so far, then you... Like, if you believe in something enough to put this much money into it, you need to believe with it and see it through. 
that just doesn't make sense to me that they marketed this as an action movie because yeah, I would if I went into this expecting Die Hard and then I got this, I would be pissed. I mean, even even expecting a bad movie, even expecting a disaster like we went in right now, it's kind of hard to make heads or tails of it just to begin with. It's it's a hard sell to begin with, and then you confuse the audience even more by setting their expectations on a different level. It it is a cartoon, like the action sequences. Everything in it has a film of comedy around it. The sound effects. That, yeah, the one-liners. I mean, the voice of the narrator at the beginning, even that, it's just so cartoonish. Yeah, so I can definitely imagine being, you know, from the men and Die Hard 2, you know, John McClane's back, that type shit, and then going to see this. That pissed me off, and (laughs) and that's what happens. That's how things get a legacy like that is, like... Well, I thought I was getting this, and I didn't, so now I'm mad about it. Now, here's my sort of hot take. It's not a hot take, but... Room temperature take? Room temperature, considering what what the room temperature of our room right now is. Mm-hmm. I actually think it maybe would be a better movie if you cast Hudson Hawk as someone else, if it wasn't Bruce Willis. I think that we're giving him a lot of credit because he's trying and it's so good to see him trying and to be like full of energy or whatever. But I don't know that he succeeds at being as funny and as cool as, and I couldn't tell you who, but as somebody else could be, maybe somebody that was a better comedian uh, than Bruce Willis is. I mean, Bruce Willis can be funny, mm-hmm. but he's not that funny. Mm-hmm. Right now, he has the extra, the advantage of the, what 30 plus years of making this funny even when it isn't yeah you know if i was watching him sing uh, uh those songs when he's doing the 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 heist in real time like in 1991 maybe i wouldn't have been as amused as i was now in 2019 oh yeah i think there's definitely it it's un our take on it's going to be unfair just inherently because yeah we're giving him just a lot more credit you know and just... even just the ride we've been on with him through the this podcast <laughs> yeah. like seeing the dribble he's made over the past few years and yeah but can you imagine this is a terrible example but like imagine Jim Carrey playing this character <laughs> it's it I was goes... gonna say Tom Hanks I was trying to think of who was big in ninety one I mean don't but I don't know Tom Hanks is has the edge to play like an ex-con that you know Tom Hanks I, is too likable yeah i think that when when willis is playing kind of an asshole when he first gets out of prison he's he's great mm-hmm. but this when he's trying to be a little sillier that just doesn't quite work it works well enough now but i don't think it helped its case and maybe that's when people are saying oh vanity project because he cast himself when maybe somebody else would have been better for that idea that he had yeah and again that's probably a huge reason why he's only written one movie and done like all this work that he has to get into it. Um, Alec Baldwin. But he's funny in a different way. Yeah. Hmm. Got I think I'm going to tweet at the guys from the recasting couch and just like, can you guys do Hudson Hawk? <laughs> <laughs> Help us out here. That being said, uh, you know, a lot of praise to Bruce Willis, and a lot of that praise is retroactive praise. Yes. Uh, something that if I watch that movie in real time, uh, Danny Aiello is a lot of fun. Uh, he... He's great. Okay. See, that's that's the perfect – Aiello is not even – it's effortless for him. With Bruce Willis, you can sense that he's trying really hard to be funny. 
succeeding. I was going to say Stallone, but then immediately that's it would seem really hard, like he was trying to be funny. <laughs> yeah, Ayel is just a natural. He's, mm-hmm. he, of course, he's older than Bruce Willis. He's, I imagine, you know, he's just more experienced, and so Mickey Rourke. <laughs> I mean, Mickey Rourke. Can Mickey Rourke, Rourke be com- funny? He can be kind of suave. Have you seen that movie where um, De Niro, Robert De Niro hires him? I think it's Angel Heart. Mickey Rourke is, is a detective and Robert De Niro hires him to solve a mystery and mm. it goes on from there. But it's Sorry, not to cut you off. I, I, I'm now thinking about who would have fit the, the mold back uh, in 1991. Yeah, it's, that's the worst part. It's like 1991. We can't even use... Uh, yeah, Cotez, Casey Jones, just jump from the, scene, uh, the set of Ninja Turtles. How old was Josh Gad in 1991? <laughs> <laughs> he probably wasn't even fucking born. So anyway, Danny, Oscar Isaac. Yeah. Like what ten? <laughs> well, I mean, if you were to remake it now, or, or it's gonna fucking happen. They're running out of shit, <laughs> and they're not gonna start making new shit. How so. desperate do you have to be to remake Hudson Hawk? I mean, dude, what? Ha- like, look at all the the shit they've made. That Battleship, like, I mean, that is desperation. But there wasn't a flop, a Battleship flop before they made Battleship. There was a. There's got to be some flop that they've remade so far. I, I'm sure. Selling it is. game, <laughs> isn't it? Hasbro know. ass out of here. Uh, <laughs> There's a Monopoly movie coming out. No. I, this it might be an Onion article, but I could swear they said Ridley Scott was attached. <laughs> Michael Fassbender was playing the Monopoly guy. <laughs> <laughs> Do not pass go. Um, God, that's fucking ridiculous. That someone at work the other day is like, hey, "Have you seen this?" Is like, "No, I don't go to the movie theaters really anymore." They're like, you have a movie podcast. I'm like, yeah, we talk about movies that are fucking old. Like, and after talking to me for ten minutes, they really understood where I was coming from and like why I don't really give a shit to go see anything new yeah, anymore. Like, but I did watch Mary Poppins. I did, and it was delightful. <laughs> uh, they had that on at work the other day, and. Who is the dude in that? Uh, I I know I looked it up when I I didn't watch the movie, but I caught the last five minutes or something, mm-hmm. and he looked familiar. I looked him up, and it's it's an actor that I know, but and, uh, not a big name. I, I didn't. It, more people seemed familiar with him than I was going in, uh, but yeah. Just to replay my thoughts on that, Colin Firth should always be the bad guy. He's got a knack for it. So, Colin Firth at Hudson Hawk. So there you, that would be awesome. <laughs> Fuck yes. No, I would recast him in the Richard E. Grant, uh, Richard e. Grant role. Yeah. He would bring some... Uh, it would be a different take on it, but still, I, I would buy it. As long as he has a mustache, I think. No, put um, Colin Firth as Tommy Five-Tone. Yes. And then put John Malkovich as the Richard E. Grant role. <laughs> Okay, I thought you were going to say Malkovich is uh, Hudson Hawk. No, 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 no. Yeah, Malkovich has always got to be, you know, the over-the-top bad guy in this situation. And then cast, I don't know, fucking Lady Gaga as Sandra Bernhardt. <laughs> and Margot Robbie is... Uh... Fucking Bradley Cooper would be a good one if, much like this, the fucking A-Team movie hadn't destroyed his will to do fucking action comedy. God... Uh- what is it? What is the? Inf- it just seems like there's an inherent dislike of action comedy, um, because I think that straddles too fine of a line. Because it seems like, in you know this as well as I do from dealing with the public on these things, there are people that just 
like blanket all comedies and don't like them. Right. And there are people that blanket all action movies and don't like them. Uh, Tropic Thunder did well. I don't think it's very action-y, but you could kind of... If you really wanted to delve into like the psychosis of it, it's the action is like this gimmick in the movie. It, that movie, man... That deserves its own pedestal for just all around. We just spent a lot of time praising Ben Stiller anyway uh, Yeah, in the last episode. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting to think about. I'm, you know, the action comedies always tend to have a hard go of it. And now, <laughs> let's not... Uh, uh, I let's guess not confuse it. This is not as good as the A-Team, all right? <laughs> or Tropic Thunder. No. or It's not a good movie. It's an entertaining movie. And there's room for those in the world. There are sequences in it that are very good. The spots of them singing while they're doing heists. That's uh, one of the highs of the movie. That, Both like times the, it happens. Yeah, but like the specifically the opening one, like in the first 10 minutes. Because it, you didn't see... I mean, I, I didn't see it coming. And when it started happening, my next reaction was... Okay, they started, but they're not gonna continue doing mm-hmm. it. But they do the whole song, yeah, yeah, and it's it's, it's edited really well. It's timed very well with everything else that's happening. So, uh, and you cut back and forth. It's not just Willis, but it's Willis and Daniello mm-hmm. singing. So, it's really good. And then the 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 whole sequence with the where he's on the stretcher, yeah, that's great. Yeah, that whole thing was awesome. It's a lot of fun, and I was being completely genuine i i fucking love that the last like spoken dialogue line of the movie is yeah that's probably what happened <laughs> just to explain why what you just watched is so fucking stupid um yeah i i mean i know i've said this and kind of circling back to where we were um retroactively watching this it, it's much more kind to it and i think really when you go into a movie like this that's what made geely so astonishing to me was that <laughs> it lived up to the hype it was worse than i could have ever imagined <laughs> and you know my expectation coming to this was okay well it can only go up and then that's you know if you had the bar right here the geely just smashed through the bottom of the bar <laughs> but with this it was like you and me, I think, kept giving each other like reassuring looks of like, Man, it's in, you know, it's it's a it's a movie. It's cracking. It's yeah, just, it's, it's moving. It's just so nice. At least it didn't drag. Yeah, and that's another. It did not overstay its welcome. It's one of those movies that if it had gone maybe thirty seconds longer, it could have gotten to the territory of you know making the wrap it up signal with your hand. But yeah, now um, us being having trouble recounting the plot even right after watching the movie. No that, shit. That was not. That was not at putting it on. For for Contrarian's Corner, that's really two of us completely yeah. sober while watching this movie. Start recording maybe ten minutes after the movie's over, and I'm having trouble remembering how we got from point A to point B because it's just that convoluted. It is very convoluted. Yeah, you could have taken you know several of the factions out of the game, and you know, kind of made it just as impactful. Yeah. Uh, now I get from your reactions while we're watching the movie and Contrarian's Corner, I kind of get the feeling that you generally like Andy McDowell more than I do. Are you like a big McDowell I fan? I love Andy McDowell. I think. Um, uh, let me rephrase. I love Andy McDowell in early to mid '90s movies because it, for whatever reason, conjures up like memories of childhood and kind of puts like this fuzzy edge on things. And she's familiar and comfortable. And uh, <laughs> those uh, those childhood. Classics, uh, Groundhog's sex, Day, Sex Lies, and oh, yeah. yeah, a lot of uh, Soderbergh's first movie on repeat as a child. Um, but I enjoy her. I mean, she's—I wouldn't say she's like fucking 
Carrie Mulligan or like an actress <laughs> of that level, but um, she definitely adds to the movie here. And the without question to me, the most chemistry Bruce had with anyone in this movie is with her. I think specifically in that auction scene. I think they're okay. I think he has more chemistry with Danny Aiello. They play off each other really well. Um, but I, I am resistant to Andy McDowell's charms. I, I like her well enough, but I, I generally, I don't know. I just don't. I don't have that connection that people like you do with her. Maybe, maybe it is like she did not shape my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> I watched Groundhog Day much later. Um, first time I saw her in anything was uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral, and she's really good in it. Mm-hmm. She's she's actually really good. But I think, for example, she has more chemistry with Hugh Grant in that movie than she does with Bruce Willis in this one. And that might have to do with the construction of the movie. <laughs> that movie's about the romance, whereas like here, yeah, the, the romance is... Tonally, slightly different films. Yeah. And maybe upon rewatch, knowing that she's a nun the entire time, it might add an extra dimension to her character and mm-hmm. explain some of her actions maybe a little better. Uh, as I mentioned in Contrarian's Corner, the zenith, the pinnacle, the peak, the high point of this film is the security guard in the museum <laughs> in Rome fucking uh, pouring spaghetti out of a thermos onto a plate. I wish we could know who came up with that, because that is, that is great. It's, is it from the mind of Bruce Willis, the mind of Steven D'Souza, the director? And it's one of those things, It's it to me it seemed it's like a Muppets gag, because it's fucking hilarious, but they don't linger or draw too much attention right, to it. It just kind of happens. Yeah. Um, that's all this movie was missing was fucking Muppets, <laughs> but yeah, the sound effects and, and, you know, your analogy in the first portion of it being, you know, like a, you know, he's a Bugs Bunny. I mean, that's, well, he's on the stretcher. Not that's too far that's off. what he is. Uh, truth be told, this really, uh, reminded me of shoot 'em up and that's another, that's more action than comedy, but that's definitely on that level of who could take this shit seriously? He's yeah. eating carrots the entire movie. He kills a guy with a carrot at the <laughs> yes. very beginning. Says, eat your vegetables. And that's another one that, despite it being called shoot 'em up I still think was kind of mismarketed and people expected something different. Because I don't know if you remember, it didn't do well with reviews or in the box office. I don't remember. It didn't do well with me. I'm not... <laughs> oh, fuck off. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, Paul Giamatti's a bad guy. I really shouldn't complain. Yes. But... I, you, you made my point for me. And there's a part where uh, Clive Owen is having sex with Monica Bellucci, and he yes. shoots a bunch of people while most it memorable sequence in the movie. And then he kills everybody, and then he says, "Talk about blowing your load." <laughs> Five stars. <laughs> Fucking absurd. So, that, would I, you say which one's better, Hudson Hawk? Uh, shoot or... him up. <laughs> we didn't even let me finish the question. You made the point that, the, that you can win any argument. Paul Giamatti's the bad guy. I think I was more entertained with Hudson Hawk, but you know it has a novelty. That's who spoke it. We we this is about you know this oh. is probably one of the more unfair screenings and reviews we've done on here, just because neither of us had seen it before coming in like we did, and it's very easy to enjoy it in the way we did. I would be very curious of. To speak to someone who watched it when it opened, who was like fucking amped for it in 1991 (laughs) and got the three day weekend for Memorial Day and then went to the theater and just Bruce Willis pissed in their Cheerios, man. (laughs) I think here's another thing. How likely are you to rewatch it? 
It's definitely, I don't even know if it ever made its way on the DVD or Blu-ray, but I assume it did. Most movies do. It's one of those, if I was, I mean, these stores don't really exist anymore, but like at a Hastings or a place like that, and I saw a used copy of it for 99 cents, I would buy it. But like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to build an hour and a half into my life (laughs) ahead of time to watch this. Like you would with Shoot Him Up. Correct. I would be uh, much more inclined to go and pull Shoot Him Up off the shelf out there and watch that again. Yeah. But I'll probably just watch uh, Good Time or Drive for the 500th time. (laughs) I think I'm on the same level of, of, you know, interest in this. I don't think that I would watch it again. Unless something really special made me that you'd say that somebody wants to watch it, I'd be like, sure. Yeah. Right. But I think that from now on, if it comes up in a conversation, my statement is going to be, hey, you know what? It's nowhere near as bad as you would think. Mm -hmm. Give it a shot. I'm looking to see if there's like a Bruce Willis commentary on there. That'd be fascinating. But which Bruce Willis? That's the thing. Because if it's Bruce Willis from now, I don't know. God, that's right. Unless it unlocks, watching Hudson Hawk unlocks the joy, at least temporarily. What was the last thing that we can really point to that Bruce was Bruce? Friends? Did friends <laughs> kill his will? <laughs> I mean, he's fun in the Expendables movies, and um, Sixth Sense was after this, which I know you're not quite as gaga about as I am. Oh, but he's but, good in it. Yeah, and I mean, not trying to just bury him. It's not like he hasn't made anything good, but, you know, they're... There's a clear before and after with Bruce, I think, where he got kind of comfortable or whatnot. And I mean, his performances have ranged over the past 20 years. But this came up actually uh, on my Twitter feed a while ago because I watched um, Death Becomes Her. Mm -hmm. And he's in it there. And you watching it, you get a similar experience to Hudson Hawk. Only Death Becomes Her is a much better movie where you're like, wow, it's Bruce Willis giving a shit. He's Mm -hmm. playing against type. He's being funny. He's he's being really good. And and I mentioned it and I got a few tweets. I think Chaz jumped in because I was saying, man, that might have been like the last time that that he did anything, that that he took a chance. And like Chaz brought up some roles i don't remember which he probably mentioned looper and i was like okay but that's dramatic willis which is not the same as it's a little it's still playing within his persona of yeah. the badass yeah looper's fucking incredible but again it's that's like john mcclane like that's you know it's not <laughs> old mcclane yeah not overreaching um so with all that said this was quite the fun experience and one of like the will probably go down for me as one of the more memorable in terms of spinning a narrative or a viewpoint for myself on the podcast. Cause, uh, in the past you had seen Julie, right? No, I hadn't. You hadn't? Nope. Okay. I think it's just cause we quoted that Turkey scene so much. <laughs> We'd both seen it, but, uh, that being said, that might go up there with Geely in terms of like going in and thinking one way and then coming out another. I know what I'm getting, what I'm getting into. And then, Nope. Yeah. No, but again, like I said at the very beginning, uh, here comes the boom or any of those other, you know, uh, you know, Walter Mitty, for example, a movie that's like 50%. That's like a great movie. That's not this, but it's not as bad as you've heard it is. Right. It's not as bad as its legacy tells you it is. Yeah. When you look at when you see that 26%, what you're thinking is not what this movie is. Mm-hmm. What What would be your, your letter grade? I don't know, like a C plus maybe. Yeah, I'm thinking... Two and a half stars, but with a with a heart next to it. So it's like I like it. It's not good, but I like it. 
Yeah, and you know, C plus is fine. That's how I graduated college. So <laughs> <laughs> that's sometime that's all you need. So that does it for Bruce. You know, um, uh, you know what you call a doctor that graduated last of his class? What doctor? <laughs> Fucking a. <laughs> and somebody once said that. I think it was like. Uh, my ex's uncle or something i was like that is an excellent point <laughs> it's true it's like uh that's why they give out super bowl rings it's like <laughs> i was on the third string still got this son bitch <laughs> so that is hudson hawk moving on to a, a bird of another feather for our next episode will be uh michael keaton <laughs> and Birdman. fantastic transition love it uh which i have not seen Birdman, but i've heard uh, many things about both good and bad. I am very much looking forward to very, it. very excited to to watch this. It will be very different from our uh, other Academy Awards movies that we did because the narrative was a lot about the the, the narrative between uh, Shakespeare in Love and The King's Speech was similar, right? Mm-hmm. These didn't deserve to win the Oscar, but they're not bad movies they just they're nowhere near as good as the movie that should have won Mm -hmm. and with birdman i don't even remember what was what it was up against but the quality of the movie i think is very different i think whether you like it or not it's a different experience than watching the king's speech and shakespeare in love how do you say the director's name uh Uh, so Birdman, the competition that year was American Sniper, Boyhood, Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, Imitation Game, Selma, The Theory of Everything, and Whiplash. I'm sure a lot of people would, would have had Whiplash as their... Whiplash was fucking awesome. It was great, and I love Boyhood, but I was glad with Birdman. So it'll be interesting to cover this, because that's definitely a, a wide range of movies with different uh, tones and political ramifications. And that's also the year that Eddie Redmayne won an Oscar. So the year <laughs> film died. <laughs> you haven't even seen The Theory of Everything. I've seen Eddie Redmayne. <laughs> oh, that was Foxcatcher, too. Man, that was a hell of a year. Uh, okay, so that'll be the next episode. That brings us uh, winding down here to our plugs section. Uh, as always, the festive years for providing our opening and closing tracks. As always, opening track, uh, Last Stand, closing track, Summer 99. We do appreciate their willingness for us to liberally use their music. Uh, we have our logo. Our logo from uh, our friend Hans Rodriguez, our fellow podcaster. He has a podcast called Nación Combi. It's in Spanish. So if you know Spanish, you want to practice your Spanish, listen to him and his buddies talk about Peruvian politics and Peruvian goings on. Um you can talk to him uh, on Twitter at Mildemonios, M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S, or you can email him at Mildemonios at Hotmail.com if you want a logo, if you want comics. He does comics, too. It's a cool guy. My plug for this week is a movie that I just recently uh, filled a gap on in my viewing history, definitely one that ranks amongst many lists in terms of all-time classics and probably one that I should be ashamed that I hadn't seen prior to now, and that is Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, seen it. Yeah. It took me a while, too. With uh, Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway. It's fantastic. I I mean, I knew they were in it. I didn't know Gene Wilder had the cameo. I didn't know Gene Hackman was his brother in it. And it's one of those movies that is really good. Um, And, I mean, I'm not spoiling anything by saying that and also it's one of those that i watched and kind of like valley of the dolls in that well they came out in the same year but more or less of like 
man, some of this is pretty heavy shit. And then I'm like, think about someone that was watching this in 1967. <laughs> like the final sequence when they they just get when they get destroyed. shot up. Yeah. But also like the whole thing about him having problems getting it up and shit mm-hmm. and just things that were not touched with a 10 foot pole at that point in time. And man, Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway were attractive ass people back in their day, dude. When Warren Beatty's doing that thing about like, if you're just looking for a lover boy, then you need to get on back to, you know, your hometown or whatever. I'm just like, take me. I I will be yours. Um, But yeah, it's, it it is one of those movies that kind of makes you fall in love with the whole notion of it all over again, to think that someone could create something like that at that point in time and have it succeed on every fucking level that it did. How did you? Uh, how did you end up watching it? Like, what made you finally go with it? Uh, our friend of the podcast, Reed, uh, it came up in conversation, and I had mentioned that I hadn't seen it. And the next time I saw him, he handed me his DVD of it. And he goes, "Watch this." <laughs> and I still have. Um, he lent me uh, La La Land because he thinks I need to watch that. And why? Uh, why? Why is he doing that to you? He loves it. A lot of people do. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to watch it. And you're judge a for myself. Uh, yeah. Uh, here nor there. Um, Bonnie and Clyde, fantastic. Just wonderful wonderful movie and again i know i'm not rattling anyone's cage with that but glad that i finally got to say i saw it yeah i uh i read a book uh called pictures from a revolution i think that's what it's called by mark harris and it basically talks about five movies that came out right around that time that basically it they symbolized the passing of the torch the old guard was going away and then the new generation of filmmakers that were taking risks and telling those kind of stories were taking over. Bonnie and Clyde was one of those movies. I think The Graduate was another one. Uh, uh, there's one with Sidney Poitier, but I don't remember if it was Heat of the Night or uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. One of those two. And one more. And then the fifth movie was one from The Old Guard. It was uh, Dr. Doolittle, which was a flop, but it was like the last big musical you know movie that, that mm-hmm. was, people were just not into that anymore was it jerry lewis uh no it was uh the guy from my fair lady rex harrison maybe i don't know not eddie murphy i can tell you that <laughs> but anyway yeah i i love that book and that was what finally rex harrison you're right yeah. made me just sit down and watch bonnie and clyde because they talked the entire book is just the making of those five movies mm-hmm. and how they their fates kind of were intertwined it was really interesting and you know, I came out of that wanting to watch all of them. Uh, I already seen uh, a couple of them, and Buddy and Clyde was the first one I saw that I could buy and watch. So that's how that happened. But uh, <clears throat> now, as far as plugs, before I do mine, here's where we insert the promo for the live stream for the Cure number three, which we were we will be part of. I'm Nick. And I'm Justin, and we can't believe it's already time for the 2019 live stream for The Cure. Thanks to our amazing peers, listeners, and supporters, last year we crushed our goal of $5,000 for the Cancer Research Institute. The Cancer Research Institute is funding research into immunotherapy to create a future immune to all forms of cancer. Every single cent we raise goes to them. And they're also rated over 92% on CharityNavigator.org. This year, we're aiming our sights even higher with our most ambitious event to date. Join us May 17th through the 19th on twitch.tv slash epicfilmguys for 40 hours of live content from us and other amazing shows who will join us to try to reach $7,500. 
please visit www.livestreamforthecure for more information or to find out how you can be a part of the event. Together, we can make a difference. So Livestream for the Cure number three. We're still not going to tell you when uh, which movie we're doing, but the dates are May 17th through May 19th, and we will be on the 18th on that Saturday from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, and we have our two bonus episodes, our, our road to the live stream, where we're going to try to squeeze all our, craft. all our stuff into an hour. Uh, we're going to do the African Queen, and we're going to do London. Um, coming up soon <laughs> and then i think when we're done with those two we'll reveal which movie we're doing on the actual live stream uh, but it should be a lot of fun now uh just quick plugs for me i told you already and this is not news by the time this comes out the movie is being out for three weeks but i love captain marvel mm-hmm. um i think that even if you're not into the mcu you're you're like movies behind like you are everything even then i would say it's worth watching because they dh sam jackson for the entire movie. And it's pretty much flawless. Nice. It's amazing. Because it, it takes place in the 90s. And mm-hmm. you know what he looks like as Nick Fury now. So he's like, he still has has hair, has his eye, he's in shape. It's it, it's great. Like technology has gotten to that point. It's amazing. Um, so love that. Uh, also, I finally watched The Wife, uh, which is the movie that Glenn Close was nominated for, for Best yeah. Actress at the Oscars. That was the one that I hadn't seen. Um you know, everybody, I said on my Letterboxd review, everybody's got into this narrative that, well, she got nominated and it was one of those Lifetime Achievement nominations. But then you watch the movie, it's actually really good. Her performance is great. It was, if it wasn't Glenn Close, if it was like a first-timer, you would nominate her anyway because it was that good. So I would say watch The Wife if you haven't. I don't think it got like a huge release because most people I talked to hadn't seen it. I, I finally rented it from iTunes. Very happy I did. That was that was great. And then just like as a side repeat plug, I finally watched Supersonic. I think I told you I was starting it, that mm-hmm. Oasis documentary. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's fucking great, isn't it? It's great, but I didn't realize that it was going to end where it ended. I thought that we were going to go with them all the way till the end. The There's a little mini like piece on the Blu-ray on about talking about that was the the guy who directed it, that concert that it ends at in 96. He said like, that was like one of the biggest things to ever happen for rock music there. And so like he wanted it to end there and maybe somewhere down the road, there'll be like a follow up to, you know, the incident where Noel took his guitar, like an ax and swung it at Liam. But yeah, I went on Wikipedia just to find, cause I'm not, I'm not well versed at all on Ace's history. I know their most popular songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you come out of that documentary just wanting to listen to those. Oh fuck yeah, dude! Just all over. When they kick Supersonic in for the first time, and that I was like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I had no idea. Honestly, I didn't even know they'd broken up. Mm-hmm. So I just thought that they'd kind of like faded away. And uh, so watching the documentary they, through the documentary, they keep alluding to the fact that they're not together anymore. So I was like, oh shit, what happened? Yeah. And then of course, I didn't get my answer from the documentary. I had to get on Wikipedia and just see what the hell happened. Oh yeah, there's a lot of versions of the story about what happened. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I saw Noel last year when he played at the Austin City Limits, uh, the Moody Theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got the program. You'll have to remind me to show it to you sometime. It's like so pretentious and just throws Liam under the bus so many times whenever he gets the chance. But uh, Did you did you find yourself picking a side while you were watching the, the movie? No. I, I 
I like both of them. I think um, lyrically, they both add to certain things. I think the band worked as a whole unit. And still today, I think Noel is a better songwriter. But like, I mean, clearly, that's not disputable. Uh, but Liam definitely like added that rock and roll flavor to He's everything. He's the showman. Yeah, exactly. So... But no, watching as an observer, their quarrels just amuse me to no end. So I I didn't really pick a side. But uh, cinematically speaking, I love the way it's made too. In that it's narrated and there's no like talking heads. It's it, it, right. It's them yeah. narrating it, but mm-hmm. you don't. And like all that footage that I had no idea existed. And yeah, did you find yourself picking a side? Yes, I I felt bad for Noel. I mean, I think that they they both. I mean, they're both ego maniacal. Yes, but there's that quote I think like halfway through the movie where somebody that knows him says, "The problem is that Noel has a lot of buttons and Liam knows how to push them." <laughs> That's what you see through the entire documentary. Yeah, Liam fucks with him and fucks with him, and the poor guy breaks every now and then. <laughs> uh, and and you know, whenever they were talking about times when Liam would just leave the stage, yeah, and then Noel would have to sing, yeah, and then Liam resents the fact that suddenly Noel is singing. I can't remember if it's in there, but one of the all-time examples of that backfiring and it was like one of uh that when they were going to do unplugged on MTV and then it's there. It, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Liam just does and then Noel did it and it's like revered as like one of the most legendary <laughs> sessions they ever did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh good stuff. Um cool. Well, we'll be back. Um this will be out on the 1st, so 15th you can expect Birdman. And we'll be pumping out those uh, mini episodes here just to kind of prime our pump, so to speak, for the, uh, the big live stream in May. For the cure, what's gonna happen, Alex Mattis? I don't know. I'll I will I will expand on my fears and my <laughs> insecurities on the bonus episode before we start the, the the timer. But but as always, we appreciate you joining us here on the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. All right, and we are recording for Real Talk for Excuse Hudson Hawk. Started talking and I immediately snorted, like fucking just did a bump before we recorded. <laughs> Let's try it again. All right. <laughs> Real Talk and Real Drugs. <laughs>